Yama. Yama, everybody, and welcome. Welcome today. I'd like to start proceedings with a welcome to country by um, our beautiful elder, Auntie Carol Cooper. Okay, you're making me feel like a rock star. Everybody, uh, <coughs> yes, my name's Carol Cooper. I'm a Derek and Gundungara from this area, and I'd like to welcome you all. Pay respects to our elders past, those that are present, but more importantly, a lot of love and hope for the future generation. I keep saying that because they are our future, and if they, if we do the right thing, they will learn from us. So please, everybody, look after your children. Thank you. Thank you so much, Auntie Carol Cooper, for that beautiful welcome to country. Uh, Yama, and welcome to The Voice, Finding Our Heart. My name is Lana Leslie. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I'm a Blue Mountains uh, resident. How good is the Blue Mountains in springtime? Yeah. Hey? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I'm your MC today. This event is organised by Blue Mountains Unions and Community with the support of the Australians for uh, Native Title and Reconciliation Group, otherwise known as ANTAR. Thank you all for being here and engaging in this really important topic. A special mention for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders in the room today and also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are here today as well. I want to acknowledge the federal member for Macquarie, Susan Templeman, state member for Blue Mountains, Trish Doyle, Blue Mountains councillors, Sarah Redshaw and Brent Hoare. And I'd also like to say that councillor Susie Van Opdorp has sent her apology. Thank you. Beautiful. Now, this event has attracted so much attention and interest and um, there's actually no more tickets left. It was just absolutely uh, full. So there's still some people moving in. Oh, another clap? Oh, why not? <laughs> why not? Why not? Um, and so welcome to all. And thank you to our special guests, Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. Thank you. <laughs> some housekeeping to begin with, folks. Uh, Leanne Tobin is unwell and unable to be with us today. Hope you get better soon, Leanne. Um, this event is being recorded and will be available as a podcast from the Blue Mountains Unions and Community website soon. Auslan Interpreting is provided by the beautiful Beck and Lizzie over here. So thank you so much for the Auslan Interpreting. It's in three parts. Oh, here we go. We're back again. I don't have to use my dad's voice anymore. In the first part, I'm going to introduce uh, Thomas and Kerry, and then I will ask them a few questions to get the ball rolling. In the second part, that's where all you fine folk are coming to the fore, where there'll be an audience Q&A. We have some roaming microphones, uh, so please wait until a microphone gets to you 
introduce yourself and then ask your question. And then later in the third and final part, we'll focus on where to from here and actions you can take. And I'm very, very happy to say that Thomas is doing a reading of the Uluru Statement from the Heart at the end of our proceedings today. So that's going to be very special. <laughs> Let me introduce um, these two fine gentlemen to, to my side. Thomas Mayo is a Kaurig Aboriginal and Kolkagul, Arabumle, Torres Strait Islander man. He is the Assistant National Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia. <laughs> Thomas. <laughs> They're both very impressive. Thomas is a signatory of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and has been a leading advocate since its inception in May 2017. He is the chairperson of the Northern Territory uh, Indigenous Labor Network and a director on the Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition Board. Thomas is the author of six books and has many articles and essays published across the major media providers. His latest book is co-authored with the man sitting next to him, Kerry O'Brien. The book is titled The Voice to Parliament Handbook, All the Details That You Need. And I've read it a couple of times now. Uh, very easy to understand, lots of great information as well. So if you haven't got it, get on it. It's great. Kerry O'Brien is a prominent Australian journalist and author whose long career includes 28 years as a national current affairs television presenter and interviewer. He has specialised in politics, but has also built a strong base in economics and business journalism, as well as investigative reporting. He has interviewed presidents and prime ministers across the world. Kerry has worked for every free-to-air television network, but has spent more than 30 years in public broadcasting. got a lot of fans here today. <laughs> he cut his teeth on trailblazing ABC current affairs programs like This Day Tonight and Four Corners and was the first presenter of the groundbreaking late night news analysis program Late Line. He was also editor. <laughs> we're going to need an extra hour. It's like we need a bigger boat, we need an extra hour. Um, he was also editor and presenter of the National 7.30 Report for 15 years. Kerry has written two books, one on former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating and more recently a memoir on the social and political upheavals he has witnessed in half a century of journalism. Over decades he has also built a strong body of conference work as a speaker, moderator and interviewer. Please welcome Thomas Mayo and Kerry O'Brien. How does that feel to get so much applause for like everything that is, that is there? I have the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> I've already forgotten. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, the very first question that I'd like to ask you is, what is the Voice to Parliament and what are its origins? Yes, so the Voice to Parliament is, that's it. Can you hear me? Yes? That's it. Okay. <coughs> Uh, the Voice to Parliament is a call from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, 
throughout uh, over a century of, of struggle um, since the Federation of Australia. Um, it is a call that comes from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which was made in 2017, which is informed by um, a history of struggle, as I mentioned. Um, when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had the unique opportunity to come together at Uluru following 13 three-day regional dialogues, uh, we considered the lessons from the past and what informs the call for uh, a voice enshrined in the Constitution uh, is, first is, is that we have a history, um, as is normal of large groups of people, of establishing representation. Uh, but every time that we have done it, representation or a voice, um, our voice has been silenced. And so there was, uh, and just to give an illustration of this, and not an exhaustive list, but there was the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association in the 1920s established. Uh, one of the leaders of that was Fred Maynard, a Waramai man, uh, a Wharfie, just like I am. Uh, that was established in 1924, disappeared from the public eye in around 1928. Um, there was the Aboriginal Advancement League, the Australian Aborigines League, uh, Fakatsi. And so those voices that I mentioned were all silenced by pure intimidation and ignorance from the authority who had the power to steal our children, to direct us to work without pay, to exile us from country and separate us from our families, to decide who we could marry, complete control over our lives. And they used that power to intimidate those leaders and silence those voices. They were starting to challenge the harmful decisions that were being made, the negligence, uh, especially of the state. And so for decades, um, through those representative bodies and through activism, uh, Indigenous people uh, fought for a change that happened in 1967. And the 67 referendum saw us counted in the census as Australian citizens for the first time. But also it saw the, the power or Indigenous affairs go from uh, the states uh, to the federal parliament, um, which was a significant but incremental step forward. And as I mentioned, it was because the states were so cruel uh, to our people, and they saw that as a, a step forward. Now, after 1967, governments began to establish voices or representative bodies for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, and, for example, uh, Whitlam established the uh, NACC. Uh, Fraser came in, got rid of that one, eventually established the NAC. Um, and then Hawke got in, he got rid of that voice, silenced that voice, uh, and eventually established the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, which came from struggle from our people, calling for a voice again, which was the Barunga Statement. And Hawke travelled to Barunga, a small Aboriginal community near Catherine in the Northern Territory, uh, in a rare moment actually listened to uh, those leaders and to that, that, um, that statement, because there were many statements and petitions before it that were dismissed and ignored. But he established ATSIC, and then John Howard came along. Uh, Howard had opposed the establishment of ATSIC in opposition, uh, and when he came into power as the Prime Minister, its days were limited, um, and he softened up the Australian public to get rid of it with a simple majority in Parliament. Um, and what he did was he amplified its problems, but this is an important to understand when we're talking about a history of Indigenous voices being silenced, that all organisations, 
all organizations have problems from time to time, but you improve, you know, update the rules or the constitution, you close any loopholes that are being exploited. You know, if it's a democracy, as ATSIC was in choosing the representation, then democracy should be allowed to run its course so that the people will choose better leaders. And if people are doing things wrong, if they're breaking the law, then the law should deal with it. But ATSIC never had that opportunity. None of our voices have ever had the opportunity. They've always been silenced as soon as they start to make, to challenge the decisions that are harmful to our people and making things worse. Um, and that's what Howard did to ATSIC. Uh, he ignored advice from his own inquiry into it uh, that recommended that ATSIC should continue. It needed some reforms, but it should continue. It was important. Um, ignored that advice, and as soon as he had the Latham Labor opposition support, he got rid of that voice as well. And so we learned that uh, it's important to have a voice because we make vast improvements when we have a voice. And we know that when we go that we go backwards when we don't have one. Because if a people don't have a voice, if they don't have structure with which to stand together with some unity to choose their own representatives and hold those representatives to account, um, to come together regularly and have a proper informed debate and discussion about what's important to your people and then go out there with some discipline and coherency to achieve change, um, then you're a rabble. And so obviously, you do worse when you don't have a voice, you do better when you have one. And as an example, and uh, you know, Kerry's gonna talk a lot longer than I do, so I I'm not feeling bad about this. But um, <laughs> That sounded a bit defensive, Thomas. <laughs> I don't normally kick off with so, so much talk. But uh, anyway, as an example, um, when ATSIC was silenced in 2005, what did you see soon after? You saw the Northern Territory Racial Discrimination Act suspended um, and the intervention happened. And the Australian Army in uniform was rolled into the most vulnerable communities in this country. An announcement that our children needed protected protection from us, their fathers, um, as if you know, this, the, the, the social issues in those communities had nothing to do with the poverty and the traumas from failed policies and harmful laws and genocide and all those things as if it was an Aboriginal problem. And for hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money, it made things worse. You saw hundreds of millions of dollars cut from community services, frontline community services under Abbott, over $500 million that when you talk, when you look at um, the youth crime in some communities like Alice Springs, um, that is always hidden the media as, a, as if it's some excuse not to have a voice. Um, look at when those children, when those youth were babies and they needed those services if they had fetal alcohol syndrome and certainly are carrying those traumas and those, the, the mental, uh, you know, need uh, all sorts of healing. Those services were vital. And they're running around the streets now because they're disaffected and they didn't get those services. Uh, and so there's real repercussions. And if you have a voice, you're able to do better. That's a no-brainer. And so when we came together at Uluru, um, what the call for a constitutionally assigned voice means is that it's time that we were recognizing the constitution. The form of recognition that we want is through a voice so that we can do better, okay? and so that it's protected from hostile governments and we can get consistently good policies and laws. Thank you.
Thank you so much, uh, Thomas, for that. <coughs> now, uh, just moving on to the importance of the voice to Parliament, and I'd like to um, invite you both to speak on this, please. Thomas, um, actually, I might start with you, Kerry. Um, why does uh, the voice to Parliament matter to non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Because we've all got the same investment in the end. We want a healthy, unified nation. We want a nation that we can feel that we can stand up and feel proud of. And when we see, <laughs> and when we see our our flow of foreign ministers and prime ministers to other uh, countries in the world that have their human rights problems, uh, that when we choose to lecture them on their problems, that we can actually uh, feel that we're not being hypocritical. Uh, that's um, so. That's just for a start. Uh, we pride ourselves on being an egalitarian country and I've always had trouble with that concept here. I don't, uh, I, I think we can find some measures of egalitarianism but we can also find some glaring examples of inequality, not just with Indigenous people. But Indigenous people are overrepresented in every category of inequality you'd care to think of. Uh, so if we've got 13, somewhere between 13 and 16% of entrenched poverty in this country, uh, at any given moment, people living on or below the poverty line, you can bet your bottom dollar that Indigenous people will be overrepresented in that group as they are well and truly overrepresented in our, in our justice system in terms of their incarceration. And these overrepresentations are just, are just one surface illustration of the depth of inequalities, which go all the way back to the day Philip planted the flag. Uh, and uh, and have been manifested in so many ways since, not least, not least in oh now I've got to stop this one, not least in a document called the Constitution, which is small enough to fit in that pocket when I remember to put it there. <laughs> it's the size of a passport. But uh, but that document, the the founding fathers went out of their way to essentially write Indigenous people out of it, and to the extent that they were even mentioned. It was about, it was about um, decreeing their absence. So their absence as citizens, their right to be counted, those really fundamental things. And, and so, um, I mean, as a journalist of 55 years now, one who, albeit, came to journalism with as much ignorance about Indigenous history uh, and about the truth of the colonising and even post-colonial times, how those injustices and inequities were entrenched, uh, I had a very sharp learning curve as a journalist uh, about those truths. And, uh, and I was just reflecting as Thomas was speaking that um, while at the same time I was absorbing every word you were saying, Thomas, I was reflecting uh, on, on the fact that probably in my working lifetime, uh, having having had my eyes opened on my first visit to Alice Springs in 1970, I have probably reported, analysed, um, reflected on, interviewed over uh, Indigenous issues uh, related to, you know, social and political and economic, uh, far more than I have on any other issue. Because I came to appreciate and understand just how important it was for all of us to know and understand that true history and to come to terms with it. And when people talk about reconciliation, we are the ones who have to reconcile because we are the ones who did the damage.
And, and that is why when Indigenous people painfully almost in their plea to us to understand just how generous their act is. The, I mean, the, the, the humility and the generosity behind the Uluru Statement is profound or are profound. A and, and the fact that they can actually find it in them uh, to invite us to take up what is a generous and humble request uh, is... Uh, just just says volumes to me uh, about about what they represent in our humanity and and what they bring to our nation if we can only listen and you know what here's the irony they're the ones who are saying we just want to be heard we just want to be heard and what we know and Thomas has scratched the surface of examples there are many what we know is when Indigenous people are heard on policy issues that are going to affect their lives, the policies are better, the policies are more efficient, the policies get better outcomes, the money is spent more wisely, the money is less likely to be wasted, and that is where the benefit, one of the benefits, lies again for all of us. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, Thomas, if I can ask uh, a similar question, why does the voice voice to parliament matter uh, to Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander peoples? Yeah, I, I think we've, we've really covered it. Um, you know, uh, the point that Kerry is making about saving money, I mean, Indigenous people don't want to see waste either. You know, we want to see programs and policies that work, where that money reaches the people that need it. Um, and so not only is it saving money, you know, getting better outcomes for every dollar spent, but it also saves lives, you know, and that's the greatest motivator for us because we're talking about our families and our communities. Um, you know, and, and I think this takes us to uh, what we said in 2015. Uh, in 2015, following all those terribly harmful decisions and another one that I was, you know, in, uh, ad, you know advocating around was that shocking Four Corners report and, and seeing the treatment of youth in detention at Dondale. You know, I mean, if anybody saw that at the time, there, there's no way that you could watch that and not be heartbroken and, and think that there is something seriously broken in this system because almost all of the time in the Northern Territory, uh, it's 100% that are Indigenous children that are in detention. And I was just in the Clarence Valley uh, just over the weekend and I was told just there it's 98% of the children in detention are Indigenous. You know, there's, there's so um, the gap was widening uh, when we lost our most recent voice. You know, not ATSIC actually, it was the First People's Congress that came soon after that, which was defunded uh, and, uh, and went by the wayside. Um, so 2015, 39 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders uh, called for a meeting with the Prime Minister and the opposition leader, and it happened at Kirribilli, and they made the Kirribilli statement from that. And the Kirribilli statement said two things that are very important. They said, firstly, when it comes to constitutional recognition, it's about time, but we're seeking more than just a symbolic form of recognition. We seek a substantive form of recognition, and the words used were that give us, that provide us with greater fairness. And secondly, that there should be a referendum council established because we know these meetings happen and nothing might follow. A referendum council that can take that question to our communities around the country, region by region, 
uh, and to the broader Australian public about what form of recognition that should be. And so that was established by bi bipartisanship. Uh, and so this is important because it's the recognition that we're accepting here uh, in this referendum is not just symbolic, okay? It's a practical reform. It provides us the means to see better outcomes, and that's really important. So we know that the 14th of October is uh, looming fast, and the question in the referendum is going to be um, a proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? Now, uh, if we can just stick with the uh, yes vote, why should people vote yes? And we've covered a lot already, I think. But, um, Kerry. Well, uh, I mean, going back to, the, to those kind of historic milestones that I've covered as a journalist, um, like, like uh, the 67 referendum, I'd been a journalist for all of two years at that point. Uh, through to the beginning of the land rights movement, Gough coming in, establishing the land rights inquiry in the Northern Territory, introducing legislation, Gough being sacked, Malcolm coming in. So Malcolm Fraser, to his great credit, and I think on race issues, uh, uh, he stood tall too as a Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, he continued that land rights and fostered its passage through the Parliament, then through to Mabo and the Wick Judgment uh, and, and so many other of these milestones and you watch the two steps forward and then you see the one step back or you see the one step forward and the two steps back and you see the failures of government on both sides of politics. I do have to say one more than the other. John Howard, you know, uh, one of my favourite reference books in my library is John Howard's autobiography uh, because when I, when I sat down to start writing books, I found he was very handy and sometimes I came to the conclusion that John had actually revealed more about himself than he'd intended. Uh, and uh, one of his revelations was that, was, was his observation in relation to Indigenous policy, and I won't go into some very interesting, a few short pages, some very interesting insights I thought, but he expressed the view there that most Indigenous people voted Labor. Now why would that be relevant to a Prime Minister who made such a song and dance about representing all Australians and about Australia being united. Because when he spoke against ATSIC in 1988 in the Parliament, he saw ATSIC as a vehicle that was going to destroy that unity, that was going to separate Australia into two societies. He was one of those who subscribed to the kind of black Parliament view. Uh, and, and he talked then about the sacred, he used the word sacred, the sacred duty of protecting Australia's unity. Well, the truth is there is no greater division in this country and hasn't been since colonisation began between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. And I have to say, through all the Howard years, he did absolutely nothing to advance that unification process. And he did actually, his government did a number of things that did the reverse. So <coughs> when we look at, at why we need to vote, yes, uh, you know, the one great uh, shame of this referendum, I believe, is that it became so divisive so quickly. And the source of that division was when the people who were promoting the No campaign uh, began to, to gild the lily, uh, began to start to ferment 
uh, fear and uncertainty, who began to paint bleak and alarmist pictures about what would happen to this really simple concept, which is Indigenous people saying, please enshrine in the Constitution our right to be heard. You can, you can do what you want in the end with the advice you give you but, you, but you will have to wear the responsibility for it because the Australian people will have expressed their wish for us to have that right. So, so uh, I'm fully confident, and, and it's true, that every time Thomas or I, quietly on the side of these events, engage in conversation with somebody who says, I think I'm going to vote no, or I am going to vote no, and how many times within 10 minutes the light has gone off in their head and they've said, actually, I'm going to vote yes. Now, that's because we have, that's not because we have divine powers of persuasion. It is because one argument is based solidly in fact and logic and history, and the other is based in fear. And dare I say it, and I'm not including everyone who wants to vote no, uh, at all, at all. We are a democracy and people have a right to take this position or that position. But we also have a right on such an important issue to know the truths. And I do ask the question, if you are so convinced and so confident that you are right in urging people to vote no, why do you sometimes have to engage in lies to bolster your arguments? Thank you, Kerry. Uh, Thomas, did you have anything to add to Kerry there? I think um, just that uh, the simplicity of this, right, this proposal. Uh, I, I want to go into something which is an absolute truth here, that this is advisory to the parliament, right? And for some people, uh, that makes it sound weak, but I'll explain why it's not weak. Um, it's because what's more than advisory to the parliament, firstly, right? Nothing. And as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and leaders, if we were to say that we wanted more than advisory, then we'd fail, right? That's just not going to change. So firstly, you've got to understand the world as it is. But is advisory weak? No, it's not. Unions, for example, can't force a parliament to do something, but it's a matter of organising. It's a matter of understanding what we're talking about and the quality of our advice or our campaigning for changes to policies and legislation that affect our members, okay? It doesn't make it weak if you cannot legally force a parliament to do something. Uh, and that's the first point. But that point is important as well because any fear-mongering that you hear, whether it's about losing your backyard, losing your farm, you know, Indigenous people deciding where we park our submarines or what interest rates should be or what parking you know, parking fines and all that sort of rubbish that's being thrown around. The simplest cut through to people is to say, it's an advisory body. It's an advisory body. Here's the 92 words, because what that question is asking, the 92 words, I can paraphrase it like this real easy. It's in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples. One, there shall be a, a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. That guarantees a voice. Two, the voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And three, the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, decide all matters relating to the voice, including the composition, powers, functions and procedures. This is an advisory voice that even the Parliament itself will shape the model. 
with Indigenous people in consultation, okay, subject to elections, you know, to hold them to account, to do a good job at that, because we have said, through this referendum, the expectation of all parliaments that Indigenous people should be able to have a body that can make representation so we're heard. Um, that is what we're voting on, yes or no. So all of that fear-mongering, point to those words and say you're being taken for mugs. You're not going to lose anything, but we're going to gain over 60,000 years of continuous heritage and culture, something that we all share, that generous gift, and we're going to do it in a way that closes the gap so we are no longer the country in the world that has proportionately the most incarcerated people on the planet. We should be ashamed of that and we should do something to fix it. So just, sorry, just, so really, you know, we're just saying yes or no to recognising Indigenous people in our constitution and listening to them. That is all we're voting on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so we, we've started to delve into talking about, you know, the no vote, and I just want to um, pose to, to you both about the no vote, um, and there has been a lot of fear-mongering um, been going around, of course, we all know that. I'm just going to pose to you uh, two objections, if you wouldn't mind speaking to those. Um, the first one is the voice to parliament will cede First Nations sovereignty. Yeah, I'll give that one up. Yep, so firstly, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous experts uh, have explained this, that we're not going to lose our sovereignty through this constitutional change. Um, they explain that the only way that Indigenous people can cede our sovereignty is by our First Nations, you know, Kororek or Larrakia or, you know, um, Bunjalung, by those nations ceding their sovereignty in a treaty. Because it's, it's the treaty, that's, that's where the sovereignty resides, right? It's in us, it's in our mob. Uh, it's not something that anyone else can give away. And this referendum is about changing the constitution to give us representation, to ensure we can make representation. So firstly, you know, legally, um, it does not cede our sovereignty. Uh, secondly, we can look to other countries, like for like nations. So nations like Australia, first world countries with a colonial history, um, they've already recognised Indigenous people in their constitutions. We're actually behind here. This isn't anything radical. We're just catching up. And other countries, you know, unlike Australia, haven't always taken away representative bodies every time Indigenous people organise one to speak with coherency. It's here in this country. That's why we need recognition through a voice. Um, but if you look to those other countries, those Indigenous peoples, those First Nations, haven't disappeared from the public, you know, like... They just haven't ceased to be suddenly assimilated the day after they gained constitutional recognition. Um, and so that's something, that's an example you can use if someone is raising that, you know, as something that they're concerned about. But finally, you know, I, as on a personal level, I'm not going to wake up on the 15th of October, you know, no longer um, Kararek, Kukugal and Erebumle. You know, I'm not going to suddenly disappear as, a, as an Indigenous person. That's just... It just uh, doesn't make any sense. Thank you so much. Uh, Kerry, did you have anything to add? Well, just to, just to put a little bit of legal weight behind that, uh, in non-Indigenous terms, uh, Robert French, a former Chief Justice of the High Court, uh, has gone into print several times <coughs> now 
refuting that claim uh, that, uh, that, that legally, in any sense, indigenous sovereignty, uh, the sovereignty reflected through many indigenous nations, could possibly be affected adversely or weakened as a result of the recognition of indigenous civilization uh, and the permanency of a voice to parliament, to, to PO parliament, not in parliament. Thank you. Thank you to both. Now, um, we're going to get on to the Q&A shortly, but I also wanted to pose another objection to that's been uh, going around, um, and, and certainly it was in the um, Australian uh, Electoral uh, Commission booklet, which you may have already seen as well, um, that no details have been provided on how members of the voice will be chosen or how it would operate. Australians should have detail before the vote, not after. We don't know how it will work. We don't know who will be on it, but we do know it will permanently divide us as Australians. Thomas, Thomas in one second, is going to take you through the points of principle uh, that are written as a backstop uh, to having the voice to parliament. The, voice, the, the points of principle on which a voice to parliament would be founded. But here's, here is the, 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 the whole kind of construct. The Constitution is a series of principles. It is a series of dot points. That is why I can fit it into my pocket. It is not a detailed document that says how many this or how many that or how big this or how that will function or where it will be placed. So, for instance, when the High Court as a concept and a principle was written into the Constitution <coughs> and then the Constitution passed, ironically, it was a British Parliament that gave us our right to that. It was the British Parliament that voted on that Constitution because we didn't have a Parliament. But when we did get the Parliament, it took that Parliament two years to determine what shape that High Court would be. Now, you can take that across to tax policy where... The Constitution says the, Fed, you know, the Government of Australia will have a right to collect taxes. As Thomas so graphically points out, the documentation, the actual laws and interpretations of laws on tax uh, that have since followed that few line reference to tax in the Constitution would be that high. And so it goes across the whole framework of the Constitution it reflects a series of points of principle which are then followed up by the parliament full of representatives that we vote for. That is the centrepiece of our democracy, the parliament, with the court system, with the justice system and the separation of powers as another pillar of our democracy which, which is there for the checks and balances, if you like, on the laws of the parliament to ensure that they are fair, etc., etc., and legal. And, and it, it, so, you know... The, the, it just underscores the lengths that some people will be prepared to go to and the extent to which they will stretch their capacity for honesty simply to try and win a point, that they would have you fearful that because, because Anthony Albanese has not spelt out a detailed structure, shape, with a, lot of, with a lot of following detail about how many members there might be in the voice, how they would come to be there, would they be elected, how would those elections take place, what communities would be represented, how big those regions would be, uh, what budget would follow, where would they, you know, would they be placed in their, in their own communities, would they be in Canberra, 
and, and the one that's constantly coming is another fear thing because uh, playing on people's suspicion of bureaucrats. Oh my God, how big is the bureaucracy going to be? Uh, the bottom line is, that is precisely why the parliament is there. That's why we elect a government. A government then commissions ministers who are in charge of departments and with their departments the ministers begin the process of policy making which then goes to their cabinet which then goes into the parliament which goes through a whole exhaustive process committee stages in both houses lower house and senate and eventually is passed into law that's how our democracy works and indigenous people are saying knock 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 uh, can we come in for a moment while you're going through the ministerial process do you mind if we just slip this document under the door of cabinet while you're looking there and, and, and when it gets to the parliament and you've engaged in your second and third and fourth drafts of the legislation, do you mind if we get a look in at these stages? That's what they're asking. But it's the parliament that determines what their resources will be, how many of them there will be. And of course, that's all subject to the scrutiny. Its credibility uh, has to pass the tests, uh, both within, um, uh, within parliamentary debate because there are various political perspectives in that parliament, more now than ever before, because you've got the Teals, you've got the Greens with greater weights, you've got other independents. I mean, it's a very interesting parliament these days, and you get lots of changes through that process. So, to we, we, you know, here's one of the great ironies. We have one of the great democracies in the world, we just don't trust it. <laughs> but, but do not be diverted by this specious claim that we need to know what the voice is going to be before we can decide whether we should have one. We've got to decide now, and it's an enormous opportunity, particularly for non-Indigenous Australians, to actually, for the first time in a very long time, and uh, there's, a, there's a sort of purity about, about a referendum that is more than any other aspect of, of our voting processes. You know, this is yes or no, that's what we get to do. On a single issue, we get to say yes or no, we're going to change the rule book of our national, of our, we're going to change our national rule book on this one issue to improve the situation. We, we're going to right a wrong here, and it's going to be better for all of us in the process. We are not going to be diverted by this other stuff. We are happy to make our decision on whether yes is right, and having done that, we will then scrutinise the process as the Albanese government, the Albanese cabinet, and then the parliament, through both its stages, eventually comes up with the voice itself. We'll make our judgments about those things too. That is the process. So, so the detail is this, the principle of recognition and listening again, right? That's all we're voting on. Um, but there's the design principles as well. So. <coughs> Uh, we understand that people want to have an idea about how it will work and, and that's a normal thing. So one of the things that uh, we negotiated as the referendum working group um, was design principles that give shape to it. So it's, it's in the book here in the, in the highlighted section of the Q&A, but also in the frequently asked questions, but also available freely online and in pamphlets and all the rest. But just to, as a couple of examples, the voice will give independent advice to the parliament and government. So under there are a whole lot of dot points, including the voice would make representations to the parliament and the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The voice would be able to make representations proactively, importantly. The voice would be able to respond to requests for representations from the parliament and executive government. The voice would have its own resources to allow it to research, develop and make representations. 
The Parliament and the Executive Government should seek representations in writing from the voice early in the development of proposed laws and policies. B, um, it will be chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people based on the wishes of local communities. So members of the voice would be selected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, not appointed by the Executive Government. Members would serve on the voice for a fixed period of time to ensure regular accountability to their communities. And to ensure cultural legitimacy, the way that members of the voice are chosen would suit the wishes of local communities and would be determined through the post-referendum process. So that's just a few of them. And already you can hear in that just some debunking of some of the myths. Um, so they're very handy for you to use as well, those design principles. Thank you so much to both of you. Um, what we're going to do is head into an audience Q&A now. So if uh, the staff here at the Hub could organise the roaming microphones, that would be great. Um, so they'll be roaming around. Please make sure that um, if you would like to say something, place your hand up when the microphone gets to you. So wait till the microphone gets to you and um, introduce yourself and uh, ask a question, short, sharp, respectful, and, and then we will um, we'll go to those. So the Q&A, uh, how are we? We're starting, we're right to go? So the microphones are ready, so if you've got a, um, yep, there's a few hands there. Thank you. Oh, my name's Roy, Roy Tasker. Um, how did we get this so wrong? I, I listen to your hi the history of all that, that's gone wrong. And then I look across the ditch to New Zealand, where not only do they thrash us in rugby, but they thrash us in just sheer humanity. How is it that they have the treaty, they have the bilang uh, bilingual uh, language and signage? I mean, they're damn Kiwis, for goodness sake. Aren't we better than that? Can't we learn something from what they got right? That sounds that like a bit of prejudice get? there. <laughs> We're Sorry, banning prejudice yes. in this room. I admit it. Sort of natural competition, I think. <laughs> Look, the, 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 the flying start that New Zealand had with the Waitangi Treaty in 1845, I think it was. 40, sorry, 45. Were, were 1845. 4040, sorry. 1840. Um, who's going to argue over five years? But, um, but uh, ironically, that was signed when New Zealand was a colony of New South Wales. Um, and, and even though uh, the history of New Zealand is also written, in, uh, its share of, being of, of its history has been written in blood, and, and there has been racism through the years, if we can call it that. I prefer to call it prejudice because we are only one race. We are many different cultures, but we are one race, which is the human race. Uh, so I prefer to call it prejudice. Um, but because of that treaty, there was a sort of fundamental level of recognition and respect that was there from the start. And I think that that has actually helped New Zealand to, to develop and advance and hit a series of high points which has led to what you are describing today. And, uh, and there is a lot for us to learn from New Zealand and, and a big part of what we can learn from New Zealand is, again, if that's where we are headed, what on earth have we got to fear? Because it's a very civil place to live in. It is a very civilised set of communities. 
Uh, and there are great advances in, in terms of reconciliation and, and in terms of, in terms of uh, a kind of uh, a unity as a nation, even though there are still uh, flaws in the glass there. Absolutely, yes. Uh, my name is, is Rob Stafford. I'm from Katoomba. Uh, firstly, I'd like to thank each of you for your presentations. Um, really, really good. Really on the on the money thoughts that help us clarify our arguments. But one of the one of the concerns I have is the no people are saying that it divides. It will divide the community. Now we're not always going to have a sympathetic government to what we're doing. Obviously, there's other sides of government or other sides of the, the argument from various uh, political parties have taken up the no question. How do we, how does the voice guarantee that there isn't going to be a more divisive community based on what, what the no argument, no people are saying? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you need only look to the actual change itself, right? Um, it's simply recognising Indigenous people. So it's including us in the Constitution. Uh, that in itself is a unifying thing. We have been excluded from the Constitution since its inception in 1901, uh, where we were expected you know, to die out. Um, that was the discussions in the Constitutional Conventions leading up to its establishment that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would die out. Um, but we haven't, we're here. And we're knocking on the door and saying, let us come in. And the, the, the differences are already there. But they're built on inequality and injustice. What this is about is correcting differences and bringing us closer together, where we all come closer to standing on the one equal platform. You know, equality is one of those ideals to which we can always ascribe and we might never reach. But we should always be on that journey. And this is a big step on that journey. And when I hear people trying to somehow liken this concept to apartheid in South Africa, uh, very hard for me to describe the sort of visceral feeling I get from it because I've seen apartheid close up. I did a long interview with Nelson Mandela not long after he became president. There's a man who understands reconciliation. There's a man who understands forgiveness. There's a man who understands humility uh, and generosity, the greatest uh, global leader of my lifetime, as far as I'm concerned. And he, he grew through the apartheid process, survived it and led his country out of it. And here's one of the things that the people who try and liken us to apartheid, if we go down this road, uh, don't know or choose not to. The model for apartheid substantially came from Queensland. We contributed to the model. So please don't lecture us about how this is going to divide us and set up some kind of apartheid. That was the same argument that John Howard's opposition used against ANSIC. I don't know that apartheid was used necessarily, but the argument about division. What it is about in the simplest of and, and, and most, um, trans uh, uh, most um, transparent of ways is about redressing a wrong that is fundamental to this country, which successive governments since Federation have failed fundamentally to address. And, the, and the, the question you come to in the end of it all is, what have we got to lose? Nothing.
what have we got to gain? Potentially a great deal. And if you're going to vote no, what is your alternative? Hello, um, my name is Jake. I've lived in the Blue Mountains pretty much my whole life. I'm an early childhood educator. And, um, well, my question is, well, my concern is that rather I have a lot of, you see a lot of coverage of people who support the No campaign in the media. Like you have a lot of people who are getting a lot of attention, whether it be the opposition leader or, or people on the No side in general. And I saw this statistic where it's like, I think it's, fair amount of people on the day are going to make up their mind when they vote yes or no. What would be the strategy to cut through that to make sure that this case is well argued for and while the media seems to focus on the no side, what would be the key to <coughs> ensure that the yes, the prize of the yes voice are really well heard? Thank you, mate. That's a very important question. Um, we need volunteers. We need people to join the Yes 23 campaign. I know there's captains in this room, yeah? Yep, Luke. Um, so we need, we need you to join, okay? Uh, we're not gonna blame the media the day after, you know, if we lose. We're not gonna blame the Yes or the No campaign. We can only do what, what we can control ourselves, okay? And this is an invitation to all Australians. We're not gonna win it unless you guys get engaged. So with all of the information that you got, hopefully this is empowering you. Um, and uh, not only join, but individually, each of you, I want you to work through a list of all the people that you can possibly influence. Write it down if you need to. Systematically work through that list. Have a conversation. Uh, and you're going to be surprised how many people you can move just by saying, um, you know, that I've looked into this. I know that it's safe. I know that it's meaningful. I'm voting yes, I want you to vote yes too. You're gonna move a lot of people, you'll be surprised just by doing that. Ringing them all up and letting them know. Be respectful in those conversations. If they have a different opinion, be patient. Hear them out. Try to understand what their objection is. That way you know what information to give them, okay? And then revisit it later on. But we are running out of time. So 43 days, so get started immediately. That's all we've got left, 43 days to the referendum. Um, so. Uh, I'll go back to volunteering. Please volunteer. If you have already volunteered or when you volunteer, put in the effort, okay? For the door knocking, for the phone banking, for the leafleting. And if you guys feel like you have this area under wraps, you know, because it's pretty progressive, then your volunteering's gonna matter to getting out there and phone banking in other states and all the rest, okay? That is the work that we have to do. We have done so much work Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, just over 3% of the population to create this opportunity for you guys to say yes or no to this. But mark my words, this is a once in a lifetime, if not once in generations opportunity. We get one shot at this and we've talked about what we gain if we succeed. But don't get this wrong. If we lose, it's not just the status quo. Okay, things are gonna get worse if we lose. You can imagine the, the hit to our self-esteem, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that already have at least twice the rate of suicide in this country, you know, it will take us backwards if we fail. And I believe that we can win, 
because I have faith in the Australian people, but you've got to do the work that we did to give you this opportunity. So get out there and do it. There's, I, would also, I would also say don't underestimate your capacity to actually make a difference. We've seen examples of this through the way the Teals won all those seats in the last election. We saw it in the Cathy McGowan model that she developed in the seat of Indi in Victoria, which had been conservative forever. Uh, it is now in its fourth term of independent representation through kitchen table conversations. That's how they did it in Indi. There are 30,000 plus volunteers now, and I've seen enough of what happens. Even just wearing a shirt or a badge into a marketplace or into your main street or various other exposures in your community. The number of people who want to come up and ask questions and who go away with their own, with the clarification that you have given them, the clarity that you have given them that eases them into a decision to vote yes. No conning, no conning. We're straight up about this because we know we have the truth and we've got the facts of history on our side. This little book, when we first agreed to do it on Thomas's idea and Thomas persuaded a publisher, Hardy Grant, to take it up, Hardy Grant didn't know uh, what to expect from this. So their initial print run was planned to be 8,000. And, and by the time, and that's, the, you know, they call, call 5,000 sales of a book a bestseller in this country. So, so 8,000 was not completely silly, except we were wondering why are we doing this to reach 8,000 people anyway. Uh, b even before we had completed it, it had gone up to 13, and before the book actually hit the bookshops, it had gone up to 19. And then it went up in 10,000 lots, and there have now been 90,000 copies of this book printed. <laughs> so, so think about what that represents. That represents a hunger right around Australia to know what this is about and to know what is the right thing to do. And we are having people coming to events like this and buying multiple copies to pass around. They're passing them around offices, they're passing them around families, they're passing them around colleagues, they're passing them to strangers in some cases. Multiple examples of that. And what, what I'm hoping uh, is that by the time this referendum is over, all 90,000 copies of this book are so dog-eared that you could barely read it. Dog-eared because it has been read by so many people. And you just got to think, it's like, it's like the it's like the kind of multiplication factor of, a, of, a, uh, of a, an earthquake. It's an exponential increase. One person reads it and passes it to two more. They pass it to two more each. And before you know it, 5,000 people have been reached and then 10 and 15 and 50. And we need that because we are talking about millions of votes. And it might sound improbable, but I think that just events like this and people like you are going to be one of the very significant factors in why we end up with a yes vote. Thank you. Um, before we get back to the floor, I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the local Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples up here in the Blue Mountains, and we've had a few yarns um, up here as well. Um, and there has been some uh, people who have, who have felt as though They've been left out uh, during the regional dialogues and, and, and finding it hard, some people found it hard to get on board with the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the Voice to Parliament because right back then with the regional dialogues, our mobs weren't consulted from up here. I was just wondering if you had a, um, a thought on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, very important question. Um, so I got involved, I, I became involved in that process because, you know, I was an advocate and, act, you know, organising rallies and all those sorts of things and ended up at the Darwin Dialogue. And um, for me, what I saw was a process uh, that was unique uh, in that it was very well resourced in and able to reach the entire continent, you know, region by region. Um, and it was led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, Professor Megan Davis was, uh, you know, the, the person that designed the dialogues um, as in having a formula to try and ensure there was a cross-section cross of perspectives and experiences so, uh, and cultural authority at each of them. So there's 100 participants at each of those regional dialogues. Um, and that wasn't to exclude anyone, that was to ensure that it wasn't just the loudest of our mob that were used to being heard, you know, skewing the results, but the, the frontline service workers, the healers, you know, those quieter advocates, um, those types of things were factored in to ensure there was a cross-section. Um, and I, you know, and then coming together in that culminating convention at Uluru uh, to, you know, synthesise uh, the priorities that were set in those dialogues to reach a, a, a common, you know, a consensus position. But the thing I say about this process, and, and you know, I hear loud and clear um, the concern, is that there is no perfect process. But I really think, you know, if you, if you think about that history of the struggle, you know, what we considered in those dialogues, uh, and the logic and good sense of what we're proposing, I reckon if we ran that process again, you know, with 10 times as much resources and 10 to, I mean, the original hope was w not 13 dialogues. Um, the, the leadership was seeking something, the resources to run uh, something like 30, over 30 um, dialogues. But I think if we had 10 times the resources, 10 times as many people involved, if we had, you know, every single Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people involved in the process, we'd reach the same outcome. You know, we need a voice. We need to do something different and protect it in the Constitution and have the Australian people back it. Um, and that is the best next step. Um, it is not the solution to all things. We're not going to see things change overnight with a voice. But we're going to see them change much quicker. And when you have a representative body, then you can do all sorts of things with it, right? Um, and so I think that's an important thing to consider. And the other thing I say is, if we're going to wait for another process to be, you know, perfect, we're never going to do anything, all right? So we've got to make a decision. Do we use this opportunity and get an incremental step forward as our elders did to see us counted, you know? Or do we sit on our hands and wait for someone else to do something for us? No. We have this opportunity. It's, it's our time now. <coughs> and finally to that, um, I think a lot of people are concerned about voting about something, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, as if you're doing something, you know, uh, without us you know, um, but this is genuinely with us. You know, there's the Uluru Statement process itself, but then there's multiple polls that show over 80% of us uh, are voting yes, okay? And some people say those polls are, are the sample's small. No, it's not. 800 of 800,000 is actually a considerable sample compared to 3,000 in normal political polling, 
of something like 15 million. So you can be confident that you're voting with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when you write yes in the ballot box. Thank you. We're going to head back into the audience now. I think Gary had the next question. Is this, yeah. Thank you both uh, for your voices and your energy. And you're calling on us now to give our voices and our energy in the next 42 days to get this over the line, um, especially through personal witness, but also through phone banking, door knocking, really getting those conversations going. One thing that would probably help all of us is a feeling of some kind of cautious optimism that we actually have a chance of getting this referendum over the line. And you guys, perhaps more than most, have been around the country, et cetera. Despite the Sydney Morning Herald telling us week after week that the referendum is going down, what is your estimation about how close are we to success in this referendum? I, I think cautious optimism is well-founded. <coughs> I mean, uh, try to read Trying to read the public mood on a referendum you'd think would be simpler than trying to crack the mood uh, of an actual election campaign. Uh, they are different, th there's differences and there's commonalities. Uh, and, and to be absolutely honest, I don't completely know the answer myself because the last referendum I was able to watch was 22 or 23 years ago, 24 years ago. But what I do know about the last one 24 years ago is that the template to defeat that is very similar to the template that's been applied to defeat this right down to the slogan, if you don't know, vote no. Which is such a shallow slogan, is it not? Let's apply that, let's apply that to voting a government in. I don't know who's going to be the education minister, so I should vote against them. You know, you could, a comedian could have a lot of fun with that one for probably two hours. Uh, so just put that to one side um, for a minute. Uh, the, the, the things I take heart from, apart from, apart from the fact that Thomas and I uh, have, been, have been taking the pulse through many, many, many of these thousands and thousands of people now, uh, and the mood is very similar in all of them, the resolve, uh, the determination to get out there, the, 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 the commitment, the passion, uh, the energy. Uh, but I ally that with what I saw in that last federal election. That was a very different election to any other election I ever covered over my 55 odd years because many more people, I suspect, for the first time thought more about the quality and the relevance and the meaning of their vote than they ever had before in their lives. And that included uh, some people who had voted many times, but it also included many young people who maybe were voting for the first or second or third time. And there was a passion that moved them about climate change. There was a passion that moved them about the need to try and reinstitute some kind of integrity to our political process. And in there too, in that mix, there was a, uh, a kindred passion, I think, among some without me overstating it, uh, for the, the Uluru Statement from the Heart and, the, and the, the, the kind of knowledge base of young people today compared to the knowledge base of my generation and even some of the generations after me. And I suspect that there are many, many young people out there who would not give a tinker's cuss for answering an opinion poll. I don't think these, uh, these polls are genuinely, my suspicion, okay, my kind of informed suspicion 
uh, is that these polls are not adequately testing of a, a, a proper diversity of public opinion. Uh, I, I think we'd be fools to, to ignore the trend. The trend has been down. And I think, in a way, the No campaign got out of the docks faster. They were going straight from the jugular for the outset. Uh, we should always remember that it's always easier to talk something down than to talk it up. Uh, I think it was always going to take time for the Yester campaigners to hit their straps uh, and for people to actually begin to listen, begin to switch on. I think there are probably a lot of people who are only starting to switch on now. There are some people who will only switch on the day before they go to vote or even the day they vote, which is why it's also important to be out there on the day. Uh, so the, the, the cautious optimism, I think, is, is well-founded. Um, I think we're going to see a different campaign from now on. I think politicians will engage much more, and we know that that's a two-edged sword. But, it's, you know, it's that kind of, it's that juggle that we have. We don't necessarily trust our political process, but we have to continue to have some faith in it, or what is there? There is nothing. So I do think that the, the, the greater engagement of politicians supporting the Yes campaign is going to is make a difference, as, and, and as an example of that, and then I'll shut up, Thomas, <laughs> as, as a classic, wonderful example of that is seeing Penny Wong and Julie Bishop standing on a stage together, two people who've been in parliamentary conflict, who've been in parliamentary conflict most of their lives, standing together on that stage, both saying that Australia has a great deal to lose in the world if no wins today. And those are the images of the, the powerful images uh, that are going to help make a difference over these next few weeks. So, so absolutely keep your optimism and don't feel that, that you're somehow gulling yourself in the process. I think it's real. I'll just add, um, you know, who was it? Plibersick and Turnbull as well the other day out there campaigning together. Um, but uh, the only thing I wanted to add is that the experience on the doors and and the you know the uh, you know the, the data that we're collection uh, collecting from our door knocking uh, and there's been a whole lot of it already, but we're seeing more yes than no at the doors, uh, and we are seeing you know 30 or 40 percent people uh, are undecided, which is an opportunity. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think this this lady is before. Yeah, so we'll go here and then we'll go there. Thank you. Just need a microphone. We'll get that to you in a Just sec. while you open up. Hi, my name is Noni McDevitt and I'm from Lura in the Blue Mountains. But my DNA is 98% native Irish. Oh and dear. <laughs> <laughs> and I come from a long line of conquered, suppressed people. And the dispossession was a reality of colonization. So I have great sympathy for our First Nations people who have been going through the same process to a great extent. And what I want to ask when I finish my little statement, uh, Thomas, is how do you think we can bring some of the cultural survival methods that our First Nations people have used into our very, very sophisticated uh, community which is facing more and more crises and collapse. But I'd like to say that 
Um, if I had come here 150 years ago, I probably would have bought into the whole idea that uh, I would be far better at managing your land, that after all you were a bunch of, uh, what was it you were? You were nomadic and pagan, savage, and you didn't know how to handle your land. And I think it's very important for all of us to realize that our ancestors may indeed have felt that way, but we need to accept that we were wrong and we were misinformed. Thank you. Well, absolutely. You know, we weren't uncivilized, we weren't savages, we, we weren't unintelligent. That was a great lie and something that is shameful and a wrong that we should right today. Um, and I, I think uh, the most important thing that you ask there is, is an opportunity to point out that this isn't just about deficits, having a voice. You know, this isn't just about closing a gap. Uh, this is something that is going to make our democracy greater because we have great wisdom and knowledge about how to care for country. And uh, at no more, um, you know, it's in times of natural disasters and uh, climate change especially, and we know that um, there is very likely to be bushfires that are coming again soon, um, that we start to realise that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have great wisdom and knowledge to share with us that'll strengthen us in that way as well. Thank you. You, you mentioned, just quickly, you mentioned the word pagan. Until the 1870s, Indigenous people in New South Wales were not able to give evidence in a court of law because they couldn't swear on the Bible. There's a million stories like that, the small stories of injustice and prejudice which were all designed to keep Indigenous people in their place so they would never be a threat. You could not represent yourself or appear for somebody else being charged with an offence because you couldn't swear on a Bible. Thank you. There is a lady just here that's been waiting quite a while. If we can get a microphone um, to here. Could we please go with the lady just down in the... She's been waiting for about for the last four speakers. If we could just go first one. Oh, it was actually that other lady, but okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> sorry. No, go, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Yep. Um, firstly, I've got this written down, but I've uh, I don't know. I, I can stick to most of it. It's not a question. It's just a statement. Uh, first of all, um, thank you, Kerry, for being a strong support beside one of our leaders. Uh, Thomas, uh, and Thomas, greetings from Pedro Stevens, Uncle Pe I remember you call him Uncle, Pedro Stevens, the leader in the Torres Strait of the regional authority, talking with him yesterday, and he was saying to um, say to you, he's very proud, and thank you for being a strong voice for Torres Strait people as well, and Thomas is related to me, um, there are seven sisters in the family, I'm the eldest of the seven, mum and dad's married. And my fifth sister married Thomas's father's eldest brother. <laughs> Follow that. <laughs> yeah. So, so we're related bloodline, and um, that, that can't um, possibly be because Thomas is a fraud. Didn't you know that? <laughs> Tommy the commie, there. Didn't you know that? And, Tommy, and Tommy <laughs> the commie. He's not only a commie. He's not. He's not indigenous at all. He's not Torres Strait Islander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Now, so, Kerry, that leads the, into the next thing is that um, Thomas's 
auntie is my sister, as I said, and very ill at the moment in Cairns. And on Monday, I go to spend some time with her before they take her home, back to Thursday Island with Ryan Docker. Tom's what she's saying in the hospital bed in Cairns. I'm worried about Thomas's children. So am I. I'm worried about all of our children. I'm a person of faith, as people know. I've, beca I've been made fun of as being the God woman who thinks that God speaks to her. And a nun friend of mine said the uh, one time to me, you have to be saying, Pearl, but no, I stop and I listen to when that still small voice tells me, now or not now. And I do live my life by a call, not by anybody else's strategic plan for my life. And it was a delight to see that Mr. Turnbull was part of that uh, program on TV this week. Because when once I asked Frida Whitlam, who is like a mother to me, and she's part of our church, Penrith Uniting, and when she first came to Penrith, she really encouraged me to continue being that mature age student doing my uh, teacher training at Nathan CAE. Without Frida's encouragement, I wouldn't have gone through. I'd go to church and she'd say to me, how is it going? You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of mock her a little bit here, just say, you know, how she talked that. How is it going, Pearl? And I'd say, oh, I'm gonna drop out, I think, Frida. And she'd say, don't you dare. And then one day when I asked her, and I didn't dare, I, anyway, that's another story, it's not about me. It's about just trying to give encouragement that uh, we all have a faith, whatever faith you follow, uh, we have to just believe and trust that God's ahead. And don't get off our Nike, get, I say to young people, take off your Nikes and walk a little bit slower beside your elders. And when I go to see Mary, I'll be saying that, uh, don't worry, Mary, I attended a function where Thomas was a rock star. <laughs> Thank you, Arnie. And, and, and can I just, I just wanted to, can I just finish off what I had written here? Um, we are proud of all our young people and Auntie um, Val, and thank you for um, all you do up here. Yeah, wonderful. And um, your grandparents, I just want to finish off by saying, Thomas, your grandparents, Uncle Tom, Tony and Auntie Sheila Mayo and your ancestors and soon to be Auntie Mary, are going to be smiling at you from now on from that land that is fairer than day in that sweet by and by. Thank you, Arnie Pearl.
thank you, Anito, for passing on that message. Thanks, my love, to Barbara. Thank you, Anito. I would like, is it Suzanne? I can't see you, Suzanne. If we could get to Suzanne, please, because we've been waiting about uh, five times for the last five questions. Yeah, if we could just get to Suzanne, that'd be great. Thank you, and we'll come back to you straight after, I promise. Thanks, Donna, and thanks, Kerry and Tom. Tom has just been amazing. Um, Kerry, you said at the beginning that, or at one stage through here, here I am here, Kerry, <laughs> um, that you had a 10-minute conversation and convinced a no voter to be a yes voter, and I've had a few conversations and I don't know that I've succeeded. And I see here you've probably got a theatre full of potential volunteers who want to go out and do exactly what you did, convince the no voters to be yes voters. How do we counter some of the misinformation, for instance, in the Electoral Commission booklet? It said that statements like it's going to hold up the courts forever and any decision um, that's going to be made will be held up for ages. Can you give us some hints of how we can well, succeed? Um the, the things that have disappointed me about mainstream media include the example I'm going to give you. So the pamphlet came out, the Electoral Commission and, and our electoral system is just about the strongest electoral system in the world. It does have a great integrity about it. Um, I do have a question mark, however, about the, about the principle uh, in a referendum of allowing uh, the, the statements on the behalf of yes, the statements on behalf of no, without any kind of filtering process or fact-checking. Uh, but where there might be a failure in that regard in the system, that is precisely what the media are supposed to be there for. So um, I may have missed something along the way. I don't pretend to cover the entire Australian media coverage uh, every day. And in fact, there's a large block of Australian media coverage that I have trouble even accessing, but, but um, or wanting to access. But uh, the Guardian, for instance, I think it was just yesterday, certainly in this very recent past, has done precisely that, a fact check on the yes and no arguments in the pamphlet. So search it up on the internet, take your copy of it, read it carefully, and have it with you when you're going to have these conversations. I'd like to say that every major media organisation had done the same thing. I don't think they have. It's about bloody time they did. Um, so that, you know, it's, it's not that hard. There's, there's the Q&A section in this book. As Thomas said, in terms of, for instance, the principles, the principles behind or the, the uh, some key dot points around what the voice would look like, um, that's, that's in there, but it's also available on the net. Uh, so, so it's not that hard. If you have a question that you feel you don't confidently understand yourself, search it out. It really will not take you long. And the internet is a, a strange beast. There's an awful lot of misinformation on it, so you do have to be careful how you trawl through it. But it doesn't... Look for, look for a kind of authority or credibility that's backing it. Look at who's saying it. Because, you know, when you, your doctor says you've got this and you go rushing to the bloody internet to, because he's never got time to explain it or she, uh, the Mayo Clinic is a rather reassuring website <laughs> to go to if you're worried about rather than Auntie Dot's uh, home solutions. Uh, so, so it is possible without that much extra effort 
to trawl through the <coughs> internet and check your resources, check your sources. I mean, there's the S23 website uh, and so on. So it is, it is possible to, give those, to be able to give those answers. And, and the, the point that I was really making about it doesn't necessarily take that long. If you've got somebody uh, who is absolutely vehemently opposed to this, you're not going to change their mind. But we think that there are a very large number of people who are somewhere between a soft yes and a soft no, or just a soft. And they're waiting to find out. And I sympathise with that. Uh, so you just speak the plain, basic fact, and you keep it simple, and you keep it honest, and you keep it straight. And you'll be surprised how often it works. Thank you. We're coming to the end of the Q&A, but the, there's a microphone um, up the top. There's a lady down here, and there's a person over here as well. So where is the microphone at the moment? Uh, can we go from there to this lady and then over here, please? Yeah, thank you. Hold, hold your microphone closer to your mouth. My name's Sandy Croker, I'm from Mount Vic. Thomas and Kerry, I wanted to say firstly that the, your book reached me from when you went to Carlton in Melbourne and a friend of mine went there and she bought your book and sent it to me. So it's literally flying all over the countryside. Um, probably what I, I don't know, do you know the words that are going to be used to in the constitution when the voice is enshrined? Do you have any idea what wording would be used? Yeah, thanks, Sandy. I, I covered it earlier, but I only paraphrased it. Perhaps I'll just read them quickly. Um, uh, and uh, actually, it's a good point as well, just to um, that earlier question. The book itself, um, we know, has changed a lot of minds. You know, people that are leaning towards no. So it's a bit harder to articulate sometimes. It's, it's put the information in their hands like this, and it helps. Um, but Chapter 9, Recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People, Section 129, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia, one, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. Two, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice may make representations to the Parliament and Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And three, the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice, including its composition, function, powers and procedures. So that was just 92 words go into the constitution that set up recognition and an advisory voice. That's it. It's a very overall thing. There's nothing really controversial in that. It's a very plain statement. I think people are concerned about what's going to be written there. I think that's really good to show them. Yeah, that's right. It is yeah. very handy just to show them those words. And anything that's controversial in there is being blown up as controversial, but actually isn't. The most eminent constitutional experts in the country have answered all of the concerns and the, um, the preeminent uh, constitutional silk, um, often in the High Court, Brett Walker, said to all of the fear-mongering about those words that it's fantastical doomsday. That was his words. Thank you. If we can go to the lady down the front, please, and then we'll come over here. Yep. Okay. My first name is Maybrick, and I came here from Norway uh, in uh, the year that um, Whitlam 
was kicked out, as you so eloquently uh, put it. And we were shocked at the situation of the indigenous people in Australia and have tried to change it in various ways ever since. If this audience had been full of, of no people, they would have left voting yes. So we are all yes people. We need to reach the no people. You said if it's a really arrogant no person, we won't change his mind. I did that by saying that in Norway, the indigenous people are Sami, and they have their own government, and they work with the Norwegian government in order to solve indigenous problems. They work together. He was so shocked because he believed in division. He said to vote, yes, is to divide the people, and that is what people do all the time. They think it's division. And the no people uh, have been very clever, more clever than the yes people. They have managed to sow little seeds of doubt. That's uh, all yeah. they needed. Did the people of Norway break out in spots <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when the Sami were actually entrusted with the idea that they might have some thoughts about their own destiny? No, they started to learn a little bit of Sami language. And that is what Hello. Yeah. Ooh, that's a problem. <laughs> no. Yeah. All right. So what I'm saying is that the no vote is being led by lies, fear, and propaganda. So I run an Aboriginal organisation. We cover from La Perouse, Redfern, up to Lithgow. I also sit on the board of the Leukemia Foundation. So whilst I care about my people, I care about all people. Now the no vote is getting media because lies, fear, and propaganda get media. You guys aren't getting media. I am deeply concerned as I am hearing from some of my non-Aboriginal brothers, sisters and recognisers that this isn't getting the media. The no vote is a problem and I am so worried that people are coming to me, my Aboriginal brothers and sisters are coming to me saying, Heidi, what do we do if we don't get media? Where are we going to be? Well, it, it impacts us a lot more. The worthlessness that I'm already feeling about the worry, I'm genuinely concerned about leaving the country if this happens. I don't want to see those suicide rates increase. You know, I work in child protection, 
of Aboriginal children are in care. I'm oh, sorry, 50% of children in care are Aboriginal. You know, 90% of children in care in Western New South Wales are Aboriginal. We have the highest population of Aboriginal people in New South Wales. In Australia, <coughs> this yes vote needs to be louder. You've got to take your gloves off and get out there. We've got Sky News standing out the front. I walk past her and I'm like, I hope you're going to tell the truth this time. You know what her response is? Thanks. Sky News is out the front. And I fully respect what you're doing, and I hope to God this gets through, because fundamentally for me, what we are asking for is responsibility. Now, one of my services, we run family preservation services. We have kept over 200 Aboriginal children out of care in the last two years because we empower our people. <laughs> right? We want our people to take responsibility for themselves and for their own, and that is what we are asking for. That's the fundamental thing. So if no voters come to you and they say, what do they want, what's the problem? You say, the Aboriginal people want responsibility for their own. We want to make decisions for our own. We have been working under a system for hundreds of years that was built not for us, but controls us. We've only managed money since 1967. This is now our time. I truly believe that we're in the place to be able to do this, and you must tell the no voters all that they want is responsibility. And you know what? If we stuff it up, that's our problem, and we wear that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we've got one last, one last question over here. Hi, I'm Peter from Hazelbrook. Uh, this may be a little contentious uh, given the discussion around the Constitution, but something that concerns me, and I'm no constitutional lawyer, but it seems that within the wording that we're being asked to vote on in this referendum, there may be a lack of mention of treaty. Now, I'm aware of the issue with the Uluru Statement, which is a beautiful and passionate piece of writing, that its voice, treaty, and truth-telling, how will it be possible for treaty to be engaged if, as I understand the Constitution, the Parliament can only legislate on matters that are explicit within that list that Kerry referred to earlier, those dot points. Can treaty actually be brought into reality at a national level because I believe that's fundamental to the success of Aboriginal land rights and indeed for all people in this country to escape the shackles of capitalism. Thank you. <coughs> the, the alteration to the Constitution that we're voting on has nothing to do with treaty itself, right? We're voting on representation. We're voting on a voice to be heard, um, to, um, you know, to improve policies and laws uh, and improve our lives. Treaty is a separate matter. Um, treaties are already underway. Okay, so you might have heard the treaty first argument, yeah? Well, it doesn't make sense, and I'll explain why. Uh, treaties are already underway in a majority of states in the Northern Territory, the processes have begun, okay? Victoria is the most advanced treaty process around a decade in, not at the point of a log of claims and a negotiation yet, that's no one's fault not the Victorian government, not the mob in Victoria. Um, it's just such a complex process, you know, over 200 years after first contact. You know, you can't compare us, Australia, and 
our first nations to other nations that have done treaties. Very different over 200 years after first contact. Um, and the both indigenous and non-indigenous experts say that treaties are going to take uh, around 30 or 40 years, maybe more. And it makes sense when you look at the Victorian example. Okay. Also, if you look at South Australia, where a treaty process began, but a change of government saw the treaty process end. You know, and so this all treaty processes and negotiations are going to be subject to that changing, you know, the changing landscape in, in who's in charge in, in Parliament. Okay. So why would we wait an unknown amount of time for an unknown outcome? Because treaty is a negotiation. You can't just put treaty into the constitution. You know, it's a negotiation. Uh, so we cannot wait to address issues about, you know, out-of-home care and those awful policies that are still taking our children from their families and from their culture. Common issues like housing, the justice system, health, education, employment, the priorities in our communities. Um, as soon as we establish a voice, we can make greater progress on all of those things. Um, and so that is why saying treaty first explicitly doesn't um, make sense. Um, or exclusively, uh, we can do more than one thing at the same time. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. We are nearing the end now. It's gone past quick, hasn't it? Uh, I'd like to just ask, in, in we spoke about actions uh, before. Um, so actions can people can take when they leave the event today. Could I just ask each of you, uh, one action that people can walk away with today. Sign up as a volunteer today. Uh, if you are already a volunteer, then please make some time to do the work. And in the engagement um, as a volunteer with your local campaign committee, don't be intimidated by what you might be asked to do. Uh, you can actually do good work just within your own family circle. You can do it within your own circle of friends and colleagues. Uh, and uh, uh, to me, the bottom line is, if you are confident of what you can say, uh, 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 of the reasons that you can give for voting yes, there's the battle done and dusted. Most people, most people will be courteous when you come to the door or when they walk up to you or you walk up to them in a shop or wherever. A and uh, we've seen so many examples already of, of that at work. Uh, I spoke to a woman at an event Thomas and I did in North Sydney who had the previous day done her first ever door knocking around the streets of Mossman, affluent Mossman. Uh, and and uh, she was glowing. And she was also immensely relieved to discover that there was only one person in all the doors she knocked who said they were voting no, and that person was quite civil too. The others were welcoming, they listened, they thought, they talked, they engaged. And, and if you've got a concern about that, then go in couples. Go in couples. But here's an easy one. Get your hands on a core flute and stick it up on your fence. And if some bugger knocks it down, replace it. Thank you, thank you so much. I think that you would agree that um, it's just been absolutely wonderful to have you both here today, so thank you.
Um, we're going to um, go to Kerry Cook now, the president of the Blue Mountains Unions and Community, to say a few words. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming today. Um, it was fantastic. We really enjoyed it. So we're just going to give the uh, a couple of presents for the people who uh, were up the stage today. So we have actually, first was um, Auntie Carol. Um, we've got a little uh, present for her. Auntie Carol's a real rock star. <laughs> Thanks, and uh, uh, Beck and Lizzie for their performance today. <laughs> and of course, our speakers, Thomas and Cherry. And of course, Lant. And of course, Lana, who did a fantastic job chairing this today. Anyway, uh, once again, thanks for coming. Um, as you know, I'm the president of the BMUC, so people who are interested in our uh, organisation, we're just a community-based organisation that uh, basically we support unionism and other social issues that come up through our membership at any time. So we're always looking for uh, new members. We meet on a Sunday at quarter past 10 in the dining room at the Family Hotel in Katoomba. We have a meeting tomorrow, actually. Yeah. And uh, anyway, once again, thanks for everybody for coming. Also, uh, you know, this did cost us a, a bit of money. So we are also looking for donations. So if you're that way inclined, as you leave, the table on the left with Deb, uh, Deb our secretary, she would be quite welcoming. welcoming. <laughs> and, uh, and one more, we'd I'd really like to thank Bronwyn Couch. <laughs> He's here somewhere. All right, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kerry, thank you. Oh, someone's lost an earring, I think. That's, did someone lose an earring? Oh, good. Oh, that was very easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, we didn't, we didn't um, have throwing earrings as part of our risk management plan today, so just got to keep it going. Uh, look, just a few thank yous before we actually finish up, and then I'm going to hand it over to Thomas to uh, read the Uluru Statement from the heart. Uh, and again, I uh, would like to say thank you again to Auntie uh, Carol Cooper. Thank you for the welcome to country today. I would also like to thank the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have come today. 
and all of our First Nations um, brothers and sisters um, from other places that are here today as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to Blue Mountains Unions and Community and, and ANTAR for making all of this happen. And big thank you and give yourselves a clap for coming today, everybody. <laughs> Great stuff. Really good. We are going to conclude now with a reading. Take it away, Thomas. Okay. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise that a peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link should disappear from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk into worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted in 2023, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to vote yes in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Thank you.
Um, thank you again, everybody, for coming today. Thank you so much to Kerry O'Brien and Thomas Mayo. Thomas is going door knocking. Um, and we'll be, so if you want to go door knocking with Thomas, sound, it sounds like an 80s band, but no, um, you can please uh, meet out the front and to go do door knocking. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a great weekend for the rest of it.